Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. One of the fundamental differences, perhaps, in our concept of intentional community here is because we're focused on art and culture, one can never say what another person needs in order to be an artist or musician or writer. Welcome everyone to episode 7 of season 2 of One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. And whether you're a brand new listener, in which case welcome, or an experienced subscriber, in which case thank you, you may consider that little tagline somewhat vague and it's purposefully so. I like to consider this show like a really good magazine, uh, particularly a good magazine radio show where you don't know exactly what you're going to get, but you tune in because you know it will inform you, educate you, entertain you, hopefully, and possibly just inspire you and that you'll always hear an interesting conversation and come out of it maybe a little wiser than you went into it. That's the intent. Anyway, we cover travel. We cover the outdoors in terms of uh, exercise and, you know, getting out on trails and um, and various other things. We, we, we also do it, though, in terms of people just battling the odds and people doing just generally interesting and challenging things with their lives. And uh, I don't know that the challenges come that much more um, challenging than what my friend Rick Dragon took on when he made a midlife uh decision to leave the Catskill Mountains behind and his workers are sort of reluctant on Tropaneur and uh, move on down to Colombia and take up his art which he had let languish for too many years and in a city, Bogota, the capital, where he felt there was not only a great art community but his money could go an awful lot further as he moved into the later years of his life. I mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit he has and he found himself opening uh, a center for the arts three hours outside of Bogota. I think it always been in the back of his mind, as you will hear later on. And he was featured all the way back. It was actually episode seven, funnily enough, of season one. That wasn't a purposeful coincidence, but it's true. But that doesn't mean it was a year ago because the show took a long break and we don't do weekly shows anyway. So that was actually all the way back in July 2020. And I thought that conversation was great about resetting your life. I thought it was really helpful. Um, what I wanted to do this time is I've been down there in the interim in late 2021. Late 2021, I was down there for two weeks, had the most wonderful time, as you will hear. And I wanted to feature Rick on this new series slash season so we could talk more about what's gone on specifically now that they've been able to buy the land that they previously only leased. And also... Um, I wanted to know about the plans to create an intentional community, uh, hence the title of this particular episode. I wanted to know more about what that means and more about uh, Rick's own vision of uh, a 
he doesn't use the word utopia, but maybe there is some of that spirit in there in terms of his ambitions uh, for this beautiful place. Uh, Rick talks in very measured tones. He doesn't get overly excited too easily. I found, in, especially in listening back, that I kind of matched him. And usually I'm quite agitated and high energy and, and a rapid talker. That's just my nature. Um, but maybe I'm also responsive to the vibes sent out by other people because I definitely uh, brought it down here. And I think what you're going to hear is a very relaxed and uh, and hopefully informative uh, discussion. I want to jump straight in now that I've warmed you up for this. So I'll, I'll, I'll save other things for after the show. And in the meantime check your good intentions uh i don't know grab a, a lovely uh, steaming hot uh, pot of colombian coffee because they do make some good stuff down there the chocolate's not bad either and settle in as we go one step beyond hola rick me amigo que tal hoy hi tony good to hear your voice as you as you can see, I've been uh, trying to uh, practice my Spanish for my next visit down to you. Um, Rick, I was listening back this morning to our previous podcast interview, uh, which was about two and a half years ago. And at the time, your Center for the Arts, Artes Humapaz, uh, located about two to three hours outside of Bogota, Colombia, was under COVID lockdown. And when I checked in with you a few weeks back about re- having you back on the show, you actually had COVID for the first time. So my, my opening question is, how are you feeling? Thank you. It, it did catch up with me. I avoided the darn thing for so long and it did catch up and I got it. And so I might have a few coughs during our interview and I apologize in advance, but I'm feeling better. Thank you. Great. And hopefully it wasn't too serious for you. It was nowhere near as bad as we all thought it was to be. And I I suppose vaccines helped with that. But, you know, we were so fearful two years ago, you know, the the mortality rate and whatnot. So, no, it was a really bad flu. Yeah, we were rightly fearful and you were under complete lockdown. And I believe it was quite a fascinating experience because you just opened this place, uh, hadn't been open long, and now you had residents there for longer than expected, but we can backtrack to some of that. Um, in between that conversation for the podcast all of 30 months back and this one, I did get to return to my, uh, myself to Colombia, second trip, second time to see you. First time was just staying with you in Bogota, though we took a drive out to look at this land that you had earmarked as a potential center for the arts. And then I came back just over a year ago and stayed for two weeks as a, as a resident and I guess partly as a friend as well. And I've got to tell you, Rick, there's rarely a day, certainly not a week in which I don't think of that trip, uh, of my, my stay there. It was it was just wonderful. And I think it's fair for me to start off telling the audience here, or reminding the audience that, you know, I do consider you a friend. I knew you really, really well when you lived in the Catskills, but I also consider you an inspiration, which is why I had you on a couple of years back, because your ability to restructure your life at, at I think it was age 55, in a different country with a different language and then to follow your passion and open something as monumental as a 280-acre art center in the countryside of a sort of habitually troubled South American country is uh, is something to behold. I don't know if you're a genius, a madman, or a, or a bit of both. Uh, um, but I, but how is how is it all going with Arda Sumapaz is probably it's- where I should jump in. It's going very well. We we accomplished a major milestone this year in which 
prior to April, we had been simply uh, leasing the, the buildings on the land and we shared it with 100 head of cattle. And finally this year, we signed the contract to purchase. We were paying it off over several years, but we finally made that down payment. They moved the cows off and we were able then to commence our project of creating an, an intentional community and opening up the trails for hiking. So we have right now about seven kilometers of trails instead of cows. That's a phenomenal difference. I, as I just mentioned, I mean, I had a, a, a incredible time. That said, uh, considering that the food was all vegetarian, it was quite strange to open your door at times and literally have a cattle cow in front of you. And I know we all felt a little weird about the treatment of of some of the animals, but I was also there, or I should say it was while I was there, you negotiated that payment structure. You had been leasing the land with a a plan to buy it, but you were able to negotiate a payment structure and you were you were ecstatic about that. And that 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 conversation, I remember you sitting at the table with the people who owned the land and uh, I guess you pulled it off. And now, as you say, the land is yours. Well, it's it's practically ours. We have to you know make payments over the next five years and we have challenges in front of us. Uh, you know, it's funny for you probably couldn't even buy a, a studio apartment in Brooklyn for the amount that we're buying this place for, but it's still a chunk of money for us. And we are basically by the people joining us as members in the intentional community, uh, we receive donations from them and we're using that then to make these payments. So we still have challenges in front of us. It's going to be the thing that wakes me up at two o'clock in the morning and a cold sweat a few times for a while to come, I think, until we've, we've truly paid it all off. That may be actually reassuring to hear. Do you wake up occasionally in the middle of the night and and say to yourself, what did I get myself into? Because you present a very calm, pretty confident aura that it's all going to be okay, which I think you need to do. <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I stop and think sometimes, oh my God, you know, what a crazy adventure I'm on, what I've done and, and, you know, how life has led me to this place that I never thought that I would be in. I didn't predict this. It wasn't a childhood ambition uh, to be here. And yet it all sort of took place and here I am and that's wonderful. And there's still a certain amount of of risk involved. There is a, a wonderful business writer by the name of Steve Farber, who I was in various conferences with back in the day when I was in business conferences. And Steve Farber talked about the importance of having oh shit moments in life. And what he meant was imagine yourself standing at the top of the, the hill on your skateboard or your skis, and you're on a really big mountain, and you're just about to do that little kick with your leg, and you go, oh shit, here we go. And, you know, you can kind of go through a lot of life without having those moments. And maybe too many of them aren't healthy. But I've definitely had a few oh shit moments, and here I am. And, you know, sometimes I have to think about the philosophy of the Stoics that, hey, you know, there's things that are not in my control. There's things that are in my control. Let's focus on what I can control and, and let's go. That's a perfectly good uh, analogy, Steve Farber, I will look up. I, as I think you know, I 
through these directing of uh, the Rock Academy shows here. And I had an eight-year-old making her debut on Friday, an adorable little girl. And at Soundcheck, I said, how are you feeling? And she said, I'm excited and I'm nervous. And I said, that's mm -hmm. a really good combination. I said, a yes. little bit of fear is great and excitement is equally good. And you've kind of done your preparation and you should be just fine. But I think it is healthy to have a little bit of fear. It's it's part of our human nervous system. It's there for a, a reason. But, you know, maybe we should back up uh, even, even further. If people are listening to this show regularly, and I'm never entirely sure how many people listen to every episode or just jump in and out. A couple of episodes back, I had Claire Yandel on the show. I met Claire during my stay down with you and her story of traveling around painting murals in various places, including at Artisuma Paz and volunteering, I thought was, a, and, and loving falling in love with Columbia. I thought all of that made for a good story, but it wasn't really a story about Artisuma Paz. If you were to give me the, the sort of two minute summary of this life change, I know two minutes is difficult, you, mm -hmm. uh, but just, just, just tell me, uh, you, 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 you changed your, your adult life, you moved, uh, you moved to Bogota. You always wanted to return to art after getting distracted by business. And then maybe because you have a business head, you also had a vision and you're trying to realize that vision. Can you just elaborate on that? Tell me what I've got right or wrong there and what the vision of Artisuma Paz has always been. You do a great job. You're hired. Um, but I've had in the back of my head, I was very fortunate. I'm going to step back just a minute and kind of remember when I was like 18 years old and I found uh, Paul Clay's great big fat two volume set of the pedagogical notebooks in the Goethe Institute in Atlanta. And the way Paul Clay, you know, who was the foundation professor for art at the Bauhaus approached nature as an inspiration for art as sort of as your guru for art um, had a profound impact on me. Then later in life, uh, the folks who went through a place called Black Mountain College in North Carolina that was very influenced, in fact, by the Bauhaus as well, had a major impact on U.S. art, perhaps even art globally. And through my own life and my time teaching art, I in turn was very influenced also by the world of theater games. Uh, when I went to university, I was around a lot of actors and they were coming out of, of that world had a big influence on my own pedagogy when I taught. So I had something in the back of my mind for many years that here in Colombia, perhaps I would like to create something, an opportunity to create a non-school, an anti-school, if you will. So a very non-traditional type of approach to art um, to share some of this approach to art making. And to that end, you know, I bought an old Renault Logan and went driving around the countryside seeking a place that that dream was sort of fleshing out. But then when I actually found this place, um, it had an energy. Now, it's funny, like yourself, I've lived in the Woodstock region and very common back home to talk about energies and channeling and, you know, a lot of alternative approaches to thinking. And having lived out there in the Catskills for so many years, I was always rather pragmatic. But here in Colombia, the idea of energy is really important. You know, an example is in New York City, you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a beautiful rocking chair being thrown away in the garbage. Well, you pick it up and bring it home. This is a, a you know, dumpster dive treasure. And here in Bogota, I would find 
I would see something on the street and a friend would be like, oh, no, be careful. You don't know who owned that before, what energy the thing possesses. And so I'm sort of like, ah, you know, yeah, poo snubs, but this energy business. But damn, if I wasn't hit by a feeling of, of energy with this particular piece of land when I found it for myself and felt that, oh, my God, this place does have a strong sense of energy. And if I could live here and create this dream that I have here, this would be the place. And through a lot of very odd serendipity, finally finding the owner, having a conversation with them, uh, you know, leading to the leasing of the property and then ultimately the contract to purchase it, a lot of wonderful serendipity. And other people, too, uh, people like Pedro Crump, who's the president of the foundation now, brought their energy to the table. And the property itself and the energy of this place sort of invited us to approach the project with a bit more ambition than that vision of the anti-art school. Uh, so we see the place, the project, as having these like six or seven major components. The anti-art school is still one of them, although sort of backburnered since COVID. Uh, the artist residency has been really fundamental to bringing people here uh, and helping finance the project. Then there's the intentional community. There's the work that we actually do in the local community. There's the reforestation project, or, or mejor dicho, better said, uh, forest restoration project where we're trying to bring back the native uh, trees that were here before the cows sort of decimated all of that. So we've got these different aspects. It's a very ambitious project and requires more of a team of people than, than just a Rick or any particular individual. Um, so the foundation is a group of people. We've got a wonderful group of people and we've adopted a governance system called sociocracy that I've really found myself quite in love with. It's based on consensus as opposed to majority rules. And so we're starting to create more of this vision and realizing this vision more as a community or, grok this, an ecosystem of communities. And this is very exciting to me. An ecosystem of community. There's a whole bunch there. We're going to pick off your your goals one by one. But uh, I'm ever so. I I was with you right till you said an ecosystem of communities. Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. We have a community here, for instance, of international artists that come. They may be here anywhere from a month or two weeks in your case to six months. Um, we have people coming back very often. Clary Andell, for instance, was here several times. Um, so there's that community. There is the local community. And the local community, they're not artists. They're, you know, campesinos. They're farmers for the most part or, or workers, laborers. Uh, and that's a community that we're, we're connected with and doing a lot with. There's the community of artists in Colombia and in Bogota. There's the, the larger community, the international community of, of simply people who come to visit and to see the art. So there's these different communities. And then so if you can imagine that no one community by itself is completely robust, it's by having several overlapping communities that support each other. They give more richness. So that to just have international artists here is wonderful, but isn't doesn't spark joy, to, to borrow from Maria Kondo. Um, 
it's that interaction of the local community with international artists, with Colombian artists, uh, that really creates magic. Right. Now that makes a lot more sense. So, so thanks for elaborating. I think it's worth setting the, um, the actual physical scene a little bit in terms of the energy. Now, uh, the first season of One Step Beyond, I had a picture of me standing in front of Mount Kilimanjaro. But for this uh, second series season, I've got the logo superimposed over a picture I took from the deck, uh, the, the terrace, I should call it probably, at Artisuma Paz of the mountains. And if you look closely, and for most people, it's just a, not even a postage stamp on their phone, but you'll see snow-capped volcanoes in the distance. Uh, if I recall correctly, you're about three hours outside of Bogota. In terms of miles, it's not that many, but the roads are pretty <laughs> right. are pretty difficult and the buses and travel is pretty slow. And yep. which direction and what is that view I'm looking at? What's the elevation? Is there a name for the mountain range? Because it's very scenic and in many ways, it's, it's entirely different from the Catskills. But in some ways, it reminded me of the Catskills. I mean, it's a couple of hours outside the capital city, for one thing. And it's mountainous and the views are amazing and it's artistic. So... Um, I'm, I'm laying all that out there, but can uh, just just to literally pin it on the map. Well, so so Arte Sumapaz itself, although from the lowest part of the property to the topmost part of the property is a difference of a thousand meters, uh, but where the main house is is at one thousand four hundred meters. Now that major volcano that you're looking at on a clear day, the Nevado del Tolima. Uh, Nevado simply means a snow-capped mountain, uh, and and it probably won't be snow-capped uh, into the next century, uh, you know, with global warming. But that is at over five thousand meters high, sixteen and a half thousand feet or more. Yeah, Gosh. it's it's up there. And interestingly, it's that's not the. I mean, that last time that volcano erupted was in nineteen forty-three. There's another volcano that's shorter off to the right. Uh, Nevado de Ruiz, and that one did have activity back in the 80s, and very tragically, that activity created a mudslide which buried a town of over 24,000 people called Romero, and certainly the largest scale of, of human loss and a natural disaster in the history of Colombia. I read about that while I was down with you because you've got an extensive library. It was uh, monumental, and it was not sufficiently reported globally for various reasons mm. yeah so those are those are not just pretty volcanoes but uh so the land so it literally that it it your land i know that uh, we just tried climbing part of it and you didn't have the trails opened and it was certainly steep but it literally rises a thousand meters from the lowest point to the highest that's point right. of your land yep. wow wow that's that's the entire height and then some of Mount Tremper from sea level wow. to the top. But yeah, it's a very, very, uh, it's a very, very beautiful place. And when I came down last time, I mean, on my first trip, I barely stepped foot outside of Bogota, I think only to visit Artesuma Paz. And on this trip, I did not actually step beyond the immediate vicinity. I decided two weeks was not even enough to enjoy what you had. I did feel, and I've got to ask you this, I felt like I was incredibly fortunate with the group of residents that, that formed the core of my two weeks there. Mm. Um, it was, uh, we, you had younger artists from 
the USA, from uh, actually from Pakistan and from Argentina and from Ireland. And then you had myself and you had uh, an older American writer came in, I should say came back at the end of my stay and there was a Swiss uh, female student as well. But the core of the 20 somethings uh, from those countries I mentioned, I guess the, uh, the, the three or four of them plus myself, they kind of like took me on. They would have had every right or every reason to be like, hey, dude, you're old enough to be our dad. Like, give us some downtime here. And I I never felt that at a single moment. I felt like I felt like very young at heart there. Now, did I just get incredibly lucky or or is it is it often like that? Is it is it typically like that in terms of generational mingling and just the the positivity that, that exuded around the place? It's it changes all the time you know every every three months pretty much there's a complete turnover of folks for the most part um we've had our difficult moments here i'm not going to sugarcoat that we've had moments of tension um where uh various things you know i mean i've certainly had to go through a lot of learning curve with the place and in fact at the moment i'm not the director of the residency itself peppa took that over uh who you met um and i'm more focused on the creation of the intentional community now um you know sort of migrated jobs but in general yes we've you know we get one group after another that forms a very strong sense of community very very quickly with one another um that's usual but every so often we get an individual who might, um, for for whatever reasons, uh, not click with the entire group, and you, it creates a different energy. Um, it is a communal residency, so unlike a place where you might go and there's a you know half a dozen cabins scattered across the side of a mountain, and you don't really see the other people, um, it's a place where people are all living pretty much in the same house together and sharing a lot of meals. So that everything that you can imagine that that might bring on good and bad does happen if i was to uh just stop uh completely lauding you with 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 praise i mean when i when i came down i think it was still evident that uh while having this energy an incredible group of people wonderful food yourself pepper i was fortunate to meet pedro as well who you're right is a really good force to, to have on board. All of that was wonderful. You were still kind of trying to get certain structures together. Um, I I think you were, you were feeling very cramped in your own space, probably partly because I think you gave me your room when I was down. Um, I felt like the, 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 the while the visual, that granary that sits uh, with the, the great view, the big room is a great visual, a great space to, 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 I guess, meet, collaborate for people to chill. You've got the, um, art studios just a little above those it was probably lacking an ideal writing room and i think that was something you were hoping to address and just that sense that maybe um you were inheriting these old buildings that as yet you didn't own and so there was work to be done can you update me on how that how how all of that has done have there been sort of upgrades in in those terms well the most exciting thing for me uh is that i have constructed a cottage or a cabin for myself uphill above the the music studio 
Uh, I believe the music studio was existing when you were there. It was. It absolutely was. Yeah, it was connected. Okay. Uh, yes, it was um, totally. Yeah. So above that was a flat area that uh, once upon a time may have had workers housing, but it was long gone and it was just like a flat plane. And I finally constructed myself a cabin. It's not my permanent home. I hope to build one in the next few years, but it's enabled me to fall in love with the place in a way that I haven't since my first month here. Uh, the, the views from down there on the terrace were a beautiful thing, as you recall. They're just twice as wonderful from up here. And to wake up to that view, that view down that, that V-shaped valley towards those volcanoes every morning, and it's constantly changing with clouds or a blue sky or birds transversing the open sky in front of the mountain is just remarkable and wonderful. So I'm very excited about that. We're also constructing a second cabin uh, next door to this one, which is going to become part of the artist residency so that people who want to come and stay, but perhaps take a little bit more distance from the main community can be up here in, in the sister cabin to this one. So those are the, the big two construction projects I think we've done since you were here. Okay. I listened back, as I said, to the previous interview. I don't mean to uh, go back over too much of it, particularly in terms of how you found yourself in Bogota and how you found yourself um, determining to open this is all covered there. But the intentional community aspect, we glossed over a little bit because I think it was still quite a ways down the line. It feels like it's getting closer. And there will be people listening to this who say, what is an intentional community? Is it a commune by another name? Is it a <laughs> cult? What are what are you on about? You know what an intentional community is. I don't really. I do and I don't. So what are you proposing for people here? Well, you know, the whole concept of intentional communities has really taken hold uh, these past 20 years, there's intentional communities that are older than that, but it's really built up steam. And they're all over the world now. You can find them all over the United States and Europe and everywhere. Uh, we have a few others here in Colombia. And the idea of an intentional community is, you, you know, you might get together with some people and you might say, hey, we all really think that, you know, yoga practice or Zen practice or, um, you know, uh, Permaculture is very important to us. Let's all go in on a piece of land together and, and share it, and we can all build our homes. And uh, to different degrees and different intentional communities, there may be less community sort of togetherness or might be less and people taking their own space. The, the idea of intentional community here at Arte Sumapaz is the idea that we have shared values, that people come together with a focus on art and culture and life, want to share a piece of land. You know, it's very different than just going off and buying a piece of land on the side of a mountain and you don't know who your neighbor is or what their uh, values are. They might be, you know, blasting music on the weekends or, or raising cattle. Very different sets of values than the folks here who might be, oh, you know, I want to focus on my music or my dance or my art. So the idea is that together we can aggregate on a piece of land. Now, in this case, we are the intentional community here is based on the land trust system that's very popular in Great Britain and in the U.S., in which an entity, often a nonprofit entity, owns the land or the building. And you purchase the right 
to your house. You may own your actual house, but not the land underneath it. That's held in perpetual trust. And then you might have, let's say, a perpetual lease that is completely renewable every 99 years so that you could even give this to your grandchildren if you wanted to or sell it. Uh, but the idea is that that traditional idea of land ownership, which I think is suspect in many ways anyway, um, doesn't exist here. So we're kind of all sharing this together in trust. And when you buy into the intentional community here and you make a donation, you have the right to uh, an allotment. You can build your own home there, which is incredibly inexpensive here in Colombia compared to the U.S., and you can perpetually have that. And you have complete rights to your allotment. I'm not going to come over and, and start digging in your yard, for instance. Uh, so that's the, the basic idea of it. Okay. What about if somebody's listening and says, oh, you mentioned the Catskills, Tony, and uh, uh, Colombia is a cool place and Bogota is a great city. And I kind of fancy a second home in Colombia. Uh, is, is permanent residence required here? No, no, by no means. Right. Okay. So, but, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm figuring you want people to look at it as more than sort of my, my weekend place, my holiday space, my, my getaway space. No, that's okay too. You know, uh, one of the fundamental differences perhaps in our concept of intentional community here is because we're focused on art and culture, one can never say what another person needs in order to be an artist or musician or writer. You know, there, mm -hmm. and so unlike an intentional community that might be based around permaculture, in which, hey, Tony, you've got to come and work in the garden, you know, 20 hours this month, uh, we have no such expectations here. If you want to hole up in your cabin and write the, you know, your next novel and not talk to anybody, you might need to do that. And we respect that. Or you might want more involvement in the community. And yes, you might want to help out in the, the community garden this weekend. Uh, but we can't say what anybody's going to need. And if somebody is interested in having a home here and yet they're not here permanently, we welcome that. Um, the intentional community is a thing in and of itself and has value in and of itself, but it's also a tool to help take this land out of the hooves of cows, so to speak, as, a, mm. as a, the idea of land conservancy. And so right. the intentional community is actually the tool that allows us to purchase this land and to take it out of that use and let the reforestation happen. One of our uh, very strong focuses here is the idea is, as you mentioned, it's uh, you know over 200 acres of land. And one key idea is that over 80% of it is going to be in uh, forest restoration. Which is which is fantastic. It was overgrown in a difficult, different way when I was down there, and obviously some of it was not grown at all because of the cattle. But it was, it was, uh, it was just like a bit ragged and rugged. And you're talking about trying to get it back, like you mentioned at the top of the show here, to its natural habitat, its uh, its natural forestation. And you know what's incredible, Tony, is to live here and to walk around. And since the cattle left, let's say back in June to see all the uh, pioneer species of plants coming up. 
So first mm. you start getting various weeds that start. The grass that they used for, for raising cattle is very pernicious. It's, there's three different species, invasive species of non-native grass here, and they're very strong. But those native plants start coming up in between and start overcoming them. And so you can start to see that here. And then all of that new growth is inviting a lot more, let's say, insects and animals uh, feeding on the insects. And so all of a sudden we can viscerally feel the increase of the fauna here as well as the flora. That That's tremendous. And it brings me to the next point I was going to raise anyway, because you've been using the word community a lot here, right? rightly so. And of course you have the wider community. And I'm very aware that you engage, and you've already said as much, you engage and interact with the wider community. You're not trying to be a bunch of kind of gringos uh, with your own, you know, do not disturb sign. Far, far from it. Actually, you've got an open door policy. In terms of just discussing how you do engage with that community, um, I, I mean, to some extent, you're setting an, an example of what's possible. And I th I, I'm projecting here, but I imagine some people living locally might welcome that return to a natural habitat. And uh, some might feel, who are you to, in I don't, I'm going to use the word impose, but the, who are you to in sort of, in you, you know, suggest that this is the way the land should be. Are you, how does that play, all of that play into your interactions with the wider community, which I, I should stress is not a city community at all. This is a rural community with, right, with villages, right. villages and small towns dotted about. Well, it's interesting. The very, very topic and is has been so strong here and is so strong still, and that is the, the concept of colonialism. Now, it's one mm -hmm. thing to you know, to take that on as a social justice idea in the United States. And when you come to Colombia, it's very, you can very much feel it. A lot of the difficult history of Colombia can be laid at the figurative feet of the United States. Everything from drug consumption to, you know, historical events that took place. Um, and a lot of the historical problems here happen because of colonialism. And then you've got colonialism, virtual colonialism, cultural colonialism, you know, the impact of, of media and whatnot. Um, there's the history of colonialism here with the Spanish and the indigenous people. So it's very, very strong here. Uh, we're very aware that as people from North America or the United States, we tend to have a lot of different points of privilege that may not exist here. And a lot of our guests bring those here too. So we frequently talk about, well, how can we ameliorate this? How can we keep this from being a gringo enclave? How can we keep from being colonialist in our attitudes and approaches to things? And some of the things systemically we can build into our activities so that any time by policy that we share things with the local community, it's also important that we invite back from them that they share with us. Uh, we have built a, a pretty bro you know, big coalition of relationships in the local community. I've never heard anybody be like, oh, my God, what are you doing reforesting that land? Because this was a very large finca and was only owned by wealthy people or wealthy family. Uh, this was not land that was in the hands of, of small landowners. Uh, in its history. This was part of a historical uh, coffee plantation here. 
So nobody feels like they're missing out on this because this was not available. Uh, none of these large fincas are. It's not the best land for cultivating agriculture either, which is why it's been no, used I, for cattle. Right. Um, that would so, make sense. You know, we talk about these things. We discuss them frequently. We try to build into the organization more opportunities to bring the local community or local artisan. Uh, I would not give us an A-plus grade on what we've done. It's an ongoing process, and we have to balance out finances. But it's very core to our belief system, and we're working at it. Great. That that's tremendous. What are some of the examples of engaging with the community? I mean, you have for I mean, you do have art shows, right? You I mean, even though you're off in the in the mountains, in the hills, you you open your door for occasional art shows, musical performances, that kind of thing. Yes, and everything we do here, you know, we make freely available to the local community. Uh, it's difficult for folks living in the local community. Transportation is often very challenging for them, and so we try to work. We're smack dab between two small municipalities, Pandi and San Bernardo. And mm -hmm. we've had many, many discussions with the local governments and uh, how we can be involved with them to get folks here. Uh, we've been invited into the local schools to um, provide workshops to the kids. It's utterly heartbreaking at times to see the lack of resources that some of these schools have. Um, although really high level of sophistication and the pedagogy in many of them, but they lack resources. So anything that we can do to help support them, we, we absolutely love doing. We also were instrumental in an art and culture festival in another local town. And all of our artists who were in house at the time went and shared. And so that's basically whenever we can share, we share. Great. When I was there and uh, got my, 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 Spanish was really not very good. <laughs> uh, somebody came came by. I think I just needed to pay them for some eggs, and I got hopelessly lost in the the, the conversation very very quickly. But finally realized that uh, this this local mother was asking me if we could do English lessons there. Um, I obviously wouldn't be the right person to lead them in Spanish, at least <laughs> not at that point. But once I finally realized that was a question, I think you said you were you were very open to something like that. Is that, is yes, that memory? Mostly, yes, mostly for us, we've done conversation groups and we're always happy to do that. Uh, you know, one of my interesting book finds in the past year was this book that is in Spanish, uh, uh, translates to reimagining Colombia. And it's as though you got all the sort of bright people in the room, you know, the person who's in charge of, you know, nonprofits in Bogota, a person who's the CEO of the, the most rapidly growing startup in, in Colombia, and sort of had a little wine party. And you said, okay, what's your opinion? What does Colombia need? And it's a series of essays that was published by McKinsey. Everybody's got lots of different ideas. What Colombia needs in order to thrive in the global marketplace. And very at the top of that list is English. And we do find that the people on the ground, they're like, hey, we want to improve our English. Uh, we're not English teachers. We don't necessarily have a structured pedagogy for teaching English. So those, but we're always happy to share those, those chat groups, so to speak. Right. That's a good way of doing that. I did notice down there that there is less English speaking, including in Bogota, uh, even as the capital, than I've seen 
in other places, albeit that in South America in general, I don't think it should be assumed that people speak English the way they do perhaps in Asia and Africa. But um, that's that's you know partly a topic to be continued or for another day. Now, you're mentioning Colombia at wide in general. What does Colombia need? Um, before the pandemic, Colombia was definitely having a sort of moment on the tourist traveler backpacking discovery trail and as we reference on that initial interview uh, this happens a lot when countries start emerging from years of turmoil be it external wars and especially civil wars it's really not uncommon and colombia was definitely getting to that place and we talked in some detail or the best we could about uh, the, the circumstances and a bit of Colombia's very convoluted history. Anyway, the pandemic sort of put a stop to that just as, as the country was, I think, almost number one on the younger travelers list, particularly for Americans. How is it doing now from your particular vantage point? Do you feel like that travel is coming back? Well, I don't know from the, the larger tourism spectacle. We do know from the, the realm of workaway, which are young backpackers, young Europeans or USians uh, who want to travel around Latin America and, and act as volunteers. Those numbers, you know, of course, plummeted during COVID and they're picking back up, but they're not back at those original levels that they were pre-COVID. Okay. Maybe that will come. And that would tie into the fact that uh, a country that one has to acknowledge, one can't sugarcoat it, pretend otherwise. It's had an awful history um, just with everything. And, and you're right to pin the blame, a lot of it on, on colonialism and uh, colonialist influence and the demand for drugs. Um, I, I, I am now, I think you'll be happy to know, Rick, when anybody ever makes a joke about me going down to Colombia, I'm like, you know what? If there wasn't a demand for cocaine from the United States, this country might never have had the the drug problems it's had. So do you mind shutting up? Yeah. <laughs> I say that as yeah. politely as I can, depending on my company. Anyway, yeah. to move yeah. to move swiftly to move swiftly along, um, there was a uh, monumental presidential election took place this year, and I'm wondering if you could just provide a very a brief, neutral overview of what took place, because it is monumental with special regard to Colombia's history. Well, for for me, it had various echoes of when Obama was elected and that hopefulness, particularly in the more uh, liberal side of the U.S., um, filled everyone with a lot of hope. And then, of course, you know, you get into a presidency and, and even a very liberal-minded politician sometimes cannot do certain things. And sometimes your some of your hopes are dashed. You know, oh, they didn't save that wildlife refuge in Alaska or something. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that might be happening here too. Um, but the the new president and, and the vice president fill a lot of people with hope. Not everybody. There's you know, certainly people I've met in the local community who are just like, oh, no, we don't like this guy. We don't trust him. He's an ex -gorilla. Um Let's back up ever so slightly. Who is the new president? Who is the new vice president? What makes them unique in Colombia's history? Um, well, Petro is the, the president. Um, and unfortunately, my history of, you know, I know he served as a mayor he was mayor of Bogota, I believe, which is the you know the biggest city in the country. So he certainly had that political experience. 
That's correct. Um, and then, okay, his vice president. Oh, my God. Um, the vice president of Colombia is Francia Marquez. Oh, Francia Marquez. Okay. Yes. And what makes her, <laughs> what makes her unique? Well, she's a woman of color. And hmm. so she's from the Pacifico region. Um, and that is just mo historically monumental here. And, you know, probably in many ways, there's many people on the left who are more excited about Francia Marquez than Petro. It's like, wow, you know, it's, it's, she's an incredible individual and excites a lot of people. Right. Well, actually, I called up a New York Times story uh, right right there. I should have had her name at my fingertips. I'm generally quite up on this stuff. And it was just before the election. And it says Francia Marquez, an environmental activist from the mountainous department of uh, Colca in southwestern Colombia, has become a national phenomenon, mobilizing decades of voter frustration and becoming the country's first black vice president on Sunday as the running mate to Gustavo Petro. So actually, that was just after the election. The Petro Marquez ticket uh, won Sunday's runoff election, according to preliminary results. Uh, Mr. Petro, a former rebel and longtime legislator, will become the country's first leftist president. So we're talking about a country that's never had a leftist president in all its history. And I, I would understand that for many people that would fill them with a certain amount of, of fear. And if you allow that, uh, that Petro has a history in one of the guerrilla groups, a, a certain justifiable fear, perhaps. Um, but at the same time, this is a country where the power has always been invested in the aristocracy and the different branches of it. And the hope that I would see is that for the first time you've got a president and indeed a vice president who are putting environmental issues first and foremost and um, really kind of shifting the balance of what it means to run a country, what should be the priorities. That's what I'm hearing and seeing from this that would fill me with hope because it, it approaches government from a different perspective than the historical sort of aristocratic and um, and, and blatantly corrupt governments that or 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 governments have masqueraded as governments in Colombia's history. Yes, and but there's also a tremendous amount of sort of being on tenterhooks with the left here. You know, we're mm -hmm. excited about uh, Petro Marquez, but at the same time, embedded in the history of Colombia, the last time that a, a great leftist politician did step up, step up uh, was Jorge uh, Gaitan, and he was assassinated just prior to taking uh, uh, power, and that set off what was called the violencia, the violence mm. in, in Colombia. And so people are afraid on one hand. There's another story going on too, and it's it's not a pretty story. And that is when you, if you watch the, the Guardian feed for Colombia, you'll see that Colombia has had more assassinations of social leaders than just about anywhere else on the globe. I am so, aware of that, yes. I am. And yes. in places like Cauca, uh, you know, where the, the main central government is a little bit less able to control things, um, these, these assassinations have taken place. Um, so it's very frightening as well. This is still going on. And there's things like the opening up of fracking. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's people who are opposed to the opening up of fracking. And there's people who, of course, want fracking. And those people who are opposed to it may not survive. This, this is, is real. This is true. 
No, this is this is true. I do believe it's the most dangerous country in the world for environmental activists and uh, journalists as well are, have long been considered fair game. And Petro and Marquez cannot take power and overnight click their fingers and put an end to that violence, um, which is an, a, a terribly unfortunate uh, underpinning, you know, undercurrent in Colombia, I mean, compared to the violence of the of of just outright sort of civil wars and guerrilla movements and death squads and government death squads, it's it, the country's in a, a great place. But uh, okay, if you're, yes. work, if you're wanna, working on, yeah, I want to stop you right there for a second though, because there's there's something that's super important, and that is Please. with many folks from North America, we say Colombia, and just as you've experienced, you start getting you know the jokes about narco traffickers and whatnot and people's perception from a PR mm-hmm. point of view is Escobar and, and these sorts of stories of violence and these these continued stories of assassinations which are horrific. However, in the bigger scheme of things, when you sort of look at the violence taking place in the US, I don't necessarily feel that Colombia is the more dangerous place. No, and I would agree. It was something you hit on two and a half years back. And I want to say, having spent a couple of weeks in Bogota and a couple of weeks in the countryside, I've yet to see a fight, let alone somebody draw a knife or a gun. Um, So... Uh, yeah, and that's not for the, that's not for the fact that I hold up inside. I think you remember when I first came to visit you, and you uh, you actually had something going on that first uh, first full night I was there. I just like got an Uber and went out on the town. I mean, you know, I I go explore. Uh, it, it is a very very friendly, safe space uh, country, and I think what we're getting at is that if you work in the um, the margins of political activism or reporting or something like that. Unfortunately, you are in a danger area because of the money involved and the illegality of some of what goes on, be it deforestation, be it drug production. I think those, and if you report on those things as well, it's you're you're a danger to the people who control illicit monies. And I think that's what we're getting at as a as a people, as a country. My God, what a what, a, what an incredibly open, warm, welcoming, friendly place. Yes. Yeah, I I agree with that totally. Uh, Just to see us out, um, for somebody who is hearing about Artesuma Paz for the first time, they've heard about these residencies and they say, wow, I would love a space to to work on any aspect of art. I want to, you know, we, we've already said it's music, it's visual art, it's sculpture, it's writing, it's, it's whatever I guess you want to call art and do so in what sounds like a great environment. Um, where, uh, how do they reach out and, and, and what should they, is there a ballpark in terms of what they think it might cost them? Because I, I want to say it's a lot cheaper than they might think. Uh, for the residency itself, uh, mm-hmm. a month's stay for, for a yes. solo room and solo bath is eight twenty five a month. Um, right. And that's with yeah. all your meals provided. Um, yeah, that's you a know, bargain. We're, yeah, we're a nonprofit. We operate on a shoestring budget. We don't try to maximize uh, what we can get from artists. We try to make it affordable for people. We have volunteer opportunities and have volunteer opportunities. We don't think anybody should not be able to come because they can't afford it. We would always like to, to find a way for people to come. Yeah, well, and, that's very, very, very affordable. And if somebody was in a fortunate position, they could sublet or something while they came down, they would actually be from the States or the UK. And I think most Western countries, they, they'd they'd 
probably cover their airfare as well out of that. So um, I will be back and I hope for a longer stay. Um, I look forward to it. Great. Thank you, Rick. It's lovely talking with you again. Thank you, Tony. And as ever, I'll make sure that all relevant links and social media contacts are in the show notes. So just scroll down, look at your phone, uh, move the page along that's there. Do something similar on your computer if that's how you're listening. Don't do it while you're driving, of course. But don't forget to do it because I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend going down to Artisumapaz. And it's obviously affordable. And hey, if not there, maybe you know of a similar place somewhere else could be close to you could be far away and it doesn't have to be a center for the arts Uh, anybody who's doing something this creative and trying to bring international people together while working within the local community factoring in such things as climate change uh, trying to come up with new ways of governance and and land ownership listen i'd like to know about them and uh, potentially of course feature them on this particular show in terms of what is being featured on this particular show, next time round we revert to the uh, outdoors as I typically know and love it, though I have been nursing a fractured knee, a fracture in my patella. I am just dying to get better. Uh, so I did have fun all the same talking to the author and uh, former member of the band Chumbawamba, Boff Wally, about the his latest book called uh, Faster, Louder, and uh, also interviewing at the same time in another country the subject of that book a uh, ex-punk called Gary Devine and that book is about Gary's journey uh, twin journey of being a mohawk punk rocker while becoming Britain's champion fell runner as such we're going to call this next episode why fell running is punk rock You may know from the previous series that uh, back in 2016, I uh, uh, went around the world with my then 11-year-old son and the then wife, and we backpacked for 10 and a half months and had the most wonderful time. I read some stories from that on the first series. And something I decided to do this year is actually every day I'm posting a picture uh, that I took on my crappy iPhone along with a very short, like one or two sentence entry from my then 11-year-old son's journal, which he was made to keep as part of his road schooling. The uh, the journal entries are, of course, uh, 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 very delightful, and the photos are intended to match those entries and maybe show that year of travel more through a kid's eyes than my own. It's also like my little daily routine. I now post the picture the moment I get up in the morning and... Um, It's all on the one step beyond socials. That's why I kind of mentioned it, because if you go over there, you'll see us um, taking that journey. Like, so, you know, February 1st, uh, 2016 was posted. uh, Actually, it was today on February 1st, 2023. So I've just gone and dated this particular show. All right. I do run another podcast. Uh, It's called the Jamming Fanzine Podcast. It's more musical. And uh, each of these these two podcasts is now on a monthly basis so that I produce a show every two weeks. That's more than enough for me. Uh, So I'll provide one more link for that there as well, which means I'll see you back here in a a month so we can uh, go faster and louder. In the meantime, peace. Peace.